We're going to be in Judges chapter 17. And as we continue on, week in and week out, opening up the Bible, considering God's Word, and thinking through the, uh, the teachings of the Scriptures, and pursuing the Father, I, I want to say that where we are in the Word speaks to where we are in life. It's an incredible truth that, that many of us have experienced over and over in the past three and a half years. Where we are in the Word speaks to where we are in life. But as I've shared before, I don't have to sit there through the week and, and think, what does the fellowship need this morning? Because miraculously, supernaturally, every time we open the Bible, wherever we happen to be in the Word, impacts, speaks to where we are in life. And as many of you know, in, in amazing ways, sometimes ways that you can't even imagine, when, when people come up afterwards and they say, how did you know what was going on in my heart this week? I say, I didn't. I don't have a clue. But where we are in the Word speaks to where we are in life. It's one of the amazing benefits of simply going through the Word faithfully, consistently, week in and week out. Isaiah 55.11, the Lord says, My Word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And so as we think about that, and as we continue on, I invite you once again to see and hear the relevance of God's Word in our lives with Judges chapter 17 this morning. It tells us there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, 1,100 pieces of silver, you know, which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold... The silver's with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now therefore I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver... To his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he was staying there. And then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem in Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. And I am going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. And I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. Let's pray. Father, we run across yet another one of those stories in your word that simply run counter to what we thought we believed and knew about your word, about your law, about what you desired. And here we see this picture of, of this man, Lord, who is obviously into pagan idolatry, hiring his own priest, doing his own thing. And we're reminded, Father, that in those days Israel had no king. And we recognize, Father, in those days Israel was not faithful to the one and true king, and that is you, Lord. May we see this morning, Father, how easy it is to step out of your will. May our hearts be guarded, Lord, but may we also learn and devote ourselves more fully to you and be led more directly by your Holy Spirit and guided through the word that you have so graciously given us. We ask your spirit to teach us through, walk us through this chapter this morning. And let us draw near to you, Father, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. We now come to what is called by some the appendix of the book of Judges. Once you finish chapter 16 in Judges, you have finished the stories of the Judges. Thirteen different guys mentioned. One of them, Abimelech, was he a judge, was he not a judge? Well, he's listed among them. He certainly was a false judge, if anything. He set himself up into power, and and he came a little earlier on. but, But now we have just finished looking at the life of Samson. We covered that on Wednesday night. We finished. I, I think I said last week I'd finish up Samson today. And the thing is, Wednesday night we, we did. So um, sorry if you came hoping to hear about Samson. Um, pick up the CD from Wednesday night. We finished up his life story there. But we get done with the judges here. And now the author, probably Samuel, does something interesting with the book. He, he spreads wide the canvas once again and gives us a broad brush stroke across this 400 year period. Chapters 17 through 21 are not set at the end of the Judges, but during the time of the Judges. In those days when Israel had no king. So this may have happened early on, in the middle, toward the end, we just don't know. But what the author's doing is giving us a couple of snapshots, a couple of Polaroid pictures, if you will, of what was going on in some individual lives in the country that was promised to Israel. And in seeing these snapshots, he's showing us in in, in miniature, a microcosm of what was really going on for the whole people of Israel. That's why these stories are here, here in the appendix. And the appendix, gang, underlies the crisis of these days, which can be summed up in one word, apostasy. Apostasy. If you're unfamiliar with that word, it actually comes from the Greek word apostasia, and it means to revolt, to renounce loyalty, or to abandon. Apostasy. It is a running away from, a turning from the Lord. If you'll flip quickly back to Judges chapter 24, we will see, or I'm sorry, Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. We'll see that Joshua said this is exactly what was going to happen. He very clearly prophesied this. To the people, beginning in verse 14 of Joshua 24, he said, Therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, well, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is making a very clear distinction. Serve God or serve the idols, but choose who you're going to serve. Don't ride the fence. Well, the people answered him in verse 16 and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great uh, signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. All the people are excited. They're proclaiming, God is our God. We have made our choice. And Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord. Excuse me? We just said we were going to serve the Lord. Yeah, but you're not going to be able to serve the Lord. It's kind of like when Peter said, Lord, I'll die with you. Even if everybody else forsakes you, I'll die with you. I'll go right to the end with you. And Jesus says, Peter, tonight you're going to betray me three times before the rooster crows. You are not able to serve the Lord, Joshua says, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and turn to foreign gods, serve foreign gods, he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. And the people said to Joshua, No, no, we will serve the Lord. But tragically, we see in this book of Judges the people's apostasy over 400 years. And it substantiates everything that Joshua says. You won't serve the Lord. No, we will serve the Lord. No, you won't. You won't. And Joshua is not just being a negative pessimist, but he knows. He understands something of the heart of man, and he knows what's going to happen. So how does this word, back in Judges chapter 17, how does it speak to us where we are in life? What does Israel's apostasy over 3,000 years ago have to do with us today? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul wrote, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money, 
boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And Paul says to Timothy, avoid such men as these. State of the world. It's the state of the world today. I read that passage, and while I tend to be a pretty optimistic and upbeat person, I read what Paul said to Timothy about the last days, and I recognize everything that he says as being the state of the world today. It was the state of Israel back then. It's the state of the world today. In the story of this guy, Micah, we see the state of the world today. We see the attitude of humanity today toward the Lord, toward religion, toward how to live our lives. It's all contained in this one chapter in Judges 17 of exactly what's going on in our world today. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 6, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. It says, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And then they will deliver you to tribulation, and will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away. Apostasy. Many will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. This, by the way, is why I think God has made it so apparent that we need to be focused on agape love. Because the reality is, in the last days in which we live, we're already seeing an obvious chilling, a freezing effect of the love that man has for man. Of the love that we have as, as people. There were days, some of you may even recall, where, where kindness to a neighbor was more the norm than the exception. But we live in a time where love is growing cold. And it's because of the increase of wickedness, of lawlessness in the world. Most people's love will chill, will grow cold. And so I believe the story of Micah, 3,000 years old, is the story of America, the story that you and I face today, the story of the world. Now this Micah is not the prophet. You've heard of the book of Micah. This is not the same one. This is, this is just a guy here in Israel, not the prophet of God. And in this story we have three definite and recognizable signs of the end. Signs of the end times. And if you want to jot these down, we'll use these as an outline for this morning. Number one, religious syncretism. Religious syncretism. I'll explain that in a moment. Number two, moral relativism. Moral relativism. And finally, number three, rightful materialism. Religious syncretism, moral relativism, or rightful and rightful materialism. Or if it's easier to remember, you can write it down this way. Blending, bending, and spending. That's what's going on in the world today. Religious syncretism, blending. Moral relativism, bending, and rightful materialism, spending. I didn't know which way to go, so I thought I'd give you both of those. Whatever's easier. <laughs> so first, number one, religious syncretism, that is the idea of blending. Look at verse one again. In the, uh, in the hill country of Ephraim, there was a man whose name was Micah. Micah's name literally means, who is like Jehovah. It's a great name. Who is like Jehovah. In other words, there is no one like Jehovah. It's that, it's that Hebrew way of saying there is no one like Jehovah. That's the entire meaning of Micah's name, and it's a wonderful name. But this Micah delves into idol worship. And he hires his own personal priest, and he designs his own blended faith. And the meaning of his name is lost to this man who is like Jehovah. Verse 2, it says that he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver, about, uh, which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. Now we can ascertain something from this one verse. Apparently Micah's mother had 1,100 pieces of silver, which was a lot in those days. If you look further down where Micah offers to give uh, 10 pieces of silver a year in verse 10 to this priest he's going to hire, that was the average wage. 
10 pieces of silver a year. So for a woman to have 1,100 pieces of silver was a lot of money. And it was missing. It had gone, gone missing. It was stolen. She's upset about it. She places a curse on this. But it turns out that Micah, her own son, was the thief. He stole all the money from his mother. And how does she respond? Does she ground him? Does she say, how could you get out of my house? You horrible thief, you robber, how could you do this to your mother? No, she, she praises him. He doesn't even get a lecture. He just gets an immediate, blessed be my son. Oh, I'm so proud of you for ripping me off and giving it back. Way to go, kiddo. This is classic Dr. Spock. Oh, just let the child find his way. He'll get there eventually. He'll experience his way into goodness and see, Oh, my son, my son, I'm so proud. Parents, let me tell you something about your kids. In case you haven't already figured it out, they are conniving little sinners just like you. And just like me. And this is a reality, and, and I, you know, we, we can laugh about it, especially if you've been around kids or you have kids, you know it doesn't take long. They come out of the womb and they are crying for their own selfish desires and it just gets, goes downhill from there. And they grow into adults who, if we are not detoured, praise, praise God, by the Holy Spirit, by Jesus Christ, we will continue down that road. And some of the most selfish people I've ever met in my life are people who started out that way as babies and ended up even worse in their old age because they never found the Lord and it is all about them that is human nature children are not born into the world innocent oh they're cute and everything when they sleep you know when they're eating cute little guy cute little little sweetie you know they're precious when they do those, those and it, it you know they come up and they have those moments of goodness and you just you get so excited about those you know why because they're so few and far between <laughs> children come out as sinners they need direction they need application they need discipline it's the responsibility of the parent to discipline and teach and train the child in the way they should go so that when they are old they will not depart from it now someone might say well wait a minute Rick Jesus said that we got to be like the little children. Yeah, not completely. <laughs> not in every way. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 18.4 Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean, humble himself? Well, children in that time, they had no rights under the law. Absolutely no rights. 100% dependent on whether or not their parents were going to care for them. That's the attitude. Dependent humility. A recognition that I need my father to feed me. I need my father to clothe me. I need my father to care for me. Humble yourself like a child and you will be ready to enter into the kingdom. Jesus does not tell us to be like children because they're innocent or spiritually more intuitive. I've, I've heard this and it, and it really concerns me, this idea that kids have this, this spiritual innocence or intuition that we need to learn from. Some have even said, yeah, but doesn't it say a little child will lead them? Have you heard that verse? Let me explain that one. It's out of the book of Isaiah and it's talking about the millennial kingdom. And it's talking about a time where the little child will lead what normally in our time would be wild animals. That they will get along because there is so much peace in the world and so much goodness in the world at the time of the reign of Jesus Christ in the world when righteousness is paramount that even the, the child says he could stick his hand into the nest of a cobra and pull the snake out and not be bitten. Why? Because there will be perfect peace. Even with animals, a little child will lead them. Speaking of a little child walking with his hand on the mane of a wolf or a lion and it's cool. Don't say anything about a little child leading an adult into the truth. That is not the truth of the Bible. Oh, Rick, why are you ragging on the kids? I'm not trying to rag on the kids. I love the kids and I love my own kids. But the reality is, like Micah's mother, we can start to get off and not do for our children what they need us to do for them, and that is train them up and discipline them and show them the truth. Which is why our children's ministry is so important. And why we keep asking for people to, to volunteer and be involved with that and help train these kids because they're not going to get it on their own. Without grounded instruction in the Word of God, our kids will learn moral relativism 
which is what we see rampant in the world today. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at verse 3. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So what's mom doing now? Well, I actually set them aside for you anyway. You just took it ahead of time. So I'm just going to give it back to you. And what's interesting is she only gives him 200 of the pieces of silver. She holds on to 900 pieces. So even she's holding on to some, some greed here. But this is a picture of a dysfunctional family. And I have to ask in the story, where's dad? He's apparently absent. Mom lays the foundation here for a life of spiritual apostasy with this boy Micah. Verse 4, So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of the silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image and they were in the house of Micah. By the way, the house of Micah is more clearly defined in verse 5. The man Micah had a shrine. The house of Micah, he didn't just put these idols up on the mantle in his home. He had a shrine, a house of gods. And that's what's being talked about here. So he puts the, uh, made an ephod, he takes these idols, he put them in the shrine with the household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. So here's yet another violation. This Micah is an Ephraimite, not a Levite. Only the Levites were supposed to be priests, but he consecrates his son to be his priest. He's making his own religion. Micah's man-made religion. He's blending his own ideas, his own thoughts, his own interests into his own special Micah religion and that's religious syncretism that's what syncretism means it's a blending it's mixing together listen gang Israel's problem during this time was not wholesale rejection of God it was the blending of Canaanite cultural paganism into Judaism it was mixing the two they weren't running away from God they were just blending into their own faith all of these other pagan rituals and idols They were trying to have a broader religion, a more tolerant religion, a more accepting religion of all directions. And Micah is a picture of that. Mixing it all together, and it's exactly what we see happening in churches and in families today, religious syncretism. I read my Bible along with my horoscope. I go to church often, but man, some of these New Age teachings are just fascinating. And there's things that we can learn from this. I'm a born-again Christian and I'm of the Baha'i faith. Christianity, folks, is never Jesus and. I said this recently. Christianity is never Jesus and. It is Jesus only. He doesn't leave room. No other, there's no other way to the Father except through me, Jesus said. There is no other option. Oh, Rick, you're sounding intolerant. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. There is one way to the Father. Not one way and a blending and a syncretism of all these other options. There is one way to the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, here's some disturbing statistics. PBS and U.S. News and World Report got together in 2002, and they discovered 77% of Americans believe all religions hold elements of the truth. 77% of Americans in this country would say the truth is kind of sprinkled out, and so we can take from this and this and this and this. Well, that's 77% of Americans. What about Christians, Rick? Well, 70% of Christians say other religions should not be included in evangelism efforts. Seven out of ten Christians say, hey, if someone wants to be Baha'i, that's fine. Don't go after them. We just want to go after the people who don't know Jesus at all and have no faith. But man, if you happen to be in this religious group or this one over here, you're fine. Well, you're, that's good. Live and let live. These statistics shocked me when I read them. What it's saying, gang, is roughly one out of every four Christians in America truly believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. One out of four. Which means in any given church, three-fourths of the population sitting there on a Sunday morning don't really believe Jesus is the only way. Oh, it's nice to hear Rick say that, and it gives us comfort to know there's a way. But there are other ways too. Religious syncretism. Blending. And it concerns me when I see this going on, and I hear this again and again, Jesus and, Jesus and. Have you seen the bumper sticker? It says, coexist. First time I saw it was in Israel, and I almost threw up. 
It's made from a cluster of the Muslim crescent moon, a 1960s peace symbol, the Star of David, and the sign of the cross. And put all together, it says, coexist. And it makes me sick. Again, Rick, you're just sounding intolerant. Maybe I am. Did you know that, by the way, the 1960s peace symbol, we all think it's so cool on tie-dye shirts and, and as a symbol, it's an upside-down cross with the arms broken. That's what it is. That's where it originated. The idea of peace that man can make. You don't need the cross. Turn that over. Break the arms. You don't need the cross. We can have peace. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Philadelphia, sweet Philadelphia. That's what the world needs. Do we even realize how much mysticism and pantheism has made its way into mainstream Christian theology Here are a handful of quotes from some Christian mystics who many modern Christian writers like to quote and appeal to. Basil Pennington said, The soul of the human family is the Holy Spirit. The soul of the human family is the Holy Spirit. How about this one? I saw God in all things. Julian of Norwich said that. My beloved is the high mountains, the lovely valley forests, unexplored islands, rushing rivers. Oh, that sounds so cool. It's pantheism. And St. John of the Cross said that. The Holy Spirit is the soul of the human family. Jesus tells us in Luke 11:13 that the Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Not that the human family collectively, in some kind of strange way, are all the Holy Spirit. Jesus, or Paul, uh, Peter said in Acts 2.38, Repent each one of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not, and the Holy Spirit who is already present in the human family collectively will begin to emerge in your life. That's New Age mysticism. This whole idea of pantheism, that is belief that God is in everything. He's in the rocks, He's in the trees, He's in the birds, He's in the pond, He's in the ocean. And we look around and we praise God because everything we see is God. It's not biblical. Paul said in Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve the Creator. That's literally the creation rather than the Creator. They serve the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton wrote the following, I see no contradiction between Buddhism and Christianity. I intend to become as good a Buddhist as I can. Now you might say, okay, Julian of Norwich, St. John of the Cross, Thomas Merton, Basil Pennington. These are not people that I even know. I have no idea who these guys are that you're quoting here. A couple things to know about them is that they they all share a universalism. A pantheism, religious syncretism, they all are talking about the blending of mystical things all together into Christianity. And gang, it's wrong. It is unbiblical. If we're giving ourselves to any word other than God's word, we are jumping into the blender. And you might say again, I don't know any of these guys you quoted. Well, you might know some of these names because they heavily quote the authors I just mentioned. Brennan Manning, Richard Foster, Philip Yancey. You heard some of those names. The quotes that I gave you came out of their books. Talking about how to become a deeper Christian. How to experience God more. Borrowing from Eastern mysticism to deepen our faith. And gang, it's faith in a blender. It's religious syncretism. That's why John wrote in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, Paul says, You brethren, you're not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but be alert and sober. And during the dark days of Israel's judges, Micah is a snapshot of blended religion, religious syncretism. But that's not all. Verse 6, reading on. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that is moral relativism. Whatever's right for you is what you need to do. Whatever your truth is. And it's bending. It's attempting to take the solid pillar of truth that the Lord has given us in His Word and in Jesus Christ and bending it to accommodate whatever we want to accommodate. 
There's a question I've heard from time to time in the Christian, uh, Christian circles that concerns me. And the question is simply this. What does your heart tell you? What do you feel in your heart? What does your heart say to you? I don't know what your heart tells you personally, but I know what my heart tells me. And maybe I'm the only sicko in the world, but I know what my heart tells me. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? If you are relying on your heart to speak to you the truth, guess what? You are relying on something that is desperately sick, according to Jeremiah. Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. All the way back in the days of Noah, just, after, just before the flood and again after the flood, the Lord says the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And when we begin to base what we do, how we act, and what we believe on how we feel and how, on what our hearts tell us, we step into the realm of the bending. We step into moral relativism. What's right for you is good for you, even if it's not right for me. We all have our own truth. Moral relativism. And in those days, every man did what was right in his own eyes. So how do I delineate the rightness or the wrongness of a thing? If my heart is desperately sick, how do I know? How do I discern? How do I follow the truth and know what the truth truly is? Jeremiah 17 verse 7 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. And I hear that verse and go, oh, I like the sound of that. A tree planted by water that's always bearing fruit, even in the dry times. A tree that, that roots down deep. Bible students, who else? Who else is like a tree planted by the water? The Psalms tell us it's a person who is in the Word. A person who meditates on the Word of God. Psalm 1 verse 2, he delights, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In whatever he does, he prospers. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And you may say, Rex, don't you ever tire of, of, of bringing us back to the word. The word, the word, the word. You hear you say that all the time, every Sunday. You keep holding up the word. Do you ever get tired of that? And I say, not in the least. For in a world of growing religious syncretism and widespread moral relativism, the Word is the standard by which we can know the truth and hear the Lord and know it's the Lord speaking to us. Not what my heart says. Because my heart is desperately sick. Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom, whom you appear as lights in the world, Paul says, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life as the standard by which we can know the truth. This world is more and more relativistic. The word cast out of the public schools. How can we even expect our children as they grow up and they go into public education to know the truth when they can't even open the word? But there's one more problem we see in the story of Micah. And that's entitled materialism or rightful materialism. It's the idea of entitlement. Spending. Look at verse 7. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite and he was staying there so he's staying in Bethlehem a little problem this Levite is staying in Bethlehem and Bethlehem was not one of the Levitical cities okay, there were 40 of them spread out through all of Israel and the Levites as priests were supposed to live among those different Levitical cities among all the people of Israel so that they could serve and that they could teach and they could be there as ministers as priests in Israel and Bethlehem was not one of the cities but this particular Levite was hanging out in Bethlehem and it tells us that uh, he departed from the city from Bethlehem and Judah to stay wherever he might find a place and as he made his journey he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah 
And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I may find a place. This wandering Levite is another picture of apostasy that we yet see again in the world today. He wanders aimlessly. He has nowhere to go. He lands in a particular spot. He is a preacher for hire. Bring me on. Verse 10 tells us, Michael said, Micah said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. And the Levite agreed to live with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite. And the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Now Micah's going, this is even better. I've got my household gods. I consecrated my son, but he's not really a Levite. Now I've got a Levite. And I've hired him on to do the work of a priest. Now he's my priest. He's being paid by Micah. Now, you know how it works. The Levitical priesthood, how were they supposed to survive? What was to be their income? It was the tithe that Israel gave to the temple. It was out of that that the priests were supposed to be cared for. Not by being hired individually. And I'm not saying that this is a wrong thing. It's the way we've kind of gotten. It's the way we've done things or been doing things in the, in the church today. But we hire. We bring in a guy from the outside. We give him a weekend with us. We interview him. We put him in front of different groups of people. And we have him preach to the congregation. And if our ear, ears are tickled just right, we hire him on. But he never becomes part of the family. He's never part of the body because he's a hired gun. He's a hired preacher. And if we get dissatisfied with him, out he goes because he's a hired guy. He's not one of us. He's just here to do what we want him to do until we're done with him. You can't do that with me. (laughs) Fire away. I'll be here every Sunday. (laughs) But Micah has hired his own personal prosperity priest. That's what he's into. It's a picture of religion today. It's churches that preach the prosperity gospel. Hey, if you come to the Lord, it's all going to be good and everything's going to be prosperous for you. That's what it's all about. It's churches who, who teach stress relief over spiritual growth. Sometimes God wants to stress you out. Did you realize that? Sometimes it's by stressing you out that you grow, that you're stretched, that you finally come to see something in your life that you didn't see before. Sometimes following the Lord is going to be more stressful for you. Just want to let you know in case it happens to be you. He may take you into hard times. What about churches that that preach and invite you to live your best life now? I know I'm treading on some toes. How about preparing for my best life then? Not worrying about whether or not it's so great right now. Hey, let let me tell you. In Jesus Christ, it is great right now. But that's not my focus and is not to be my focus. My focus is to be then. That is where I'm headed. That is what it's all about. It's where I'm headed to be with Jesus in person, face to face, walking with Him constantly. And right now, now this is the quarry. You know the example we've talked about being in the quarry? Where the, the stones for the temple were cut and it was hot and difficult work and it was noisy and there was chipping going on. But by the time the stones were finished in the quarry and brought up to the temple mount in the days of Solomon... They slid perfectly and silently into place. And the temple came. That's when we're with Jesus. Eternally. Right now we're in the quarry. So don't expect your best life now. It's wonderful in Jesus. Praise God. He is great. He is gracious. And He makes life better than without Him, obviously. But it may be a challenge. It may be a struggle. That's okay. Because the best is yet to come. By the way, why did Micah have to hire his own priest at all? Think about this. Micah was an Ephraimite. He is from the tribe of Ephraim. And do you know what sat smack dab in the middle of the territory of Ephraim? It was a town called Shiloh. And what sat in the middle of Shiloh was a thing called the tabernacle. And what sat in the middle of the tabernacle was another thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And what sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant was yet another thing called the Mercy Seat. And the Lord said, I will meet you there. The Tent of Meeting. Do you want to know my will, Israel? Come to the Tabernacle. Come to the Tent of Meeting. I will meet you there. Micah didn't need to hire a priest. All he had to do was walk ten feet out his front door to go over to the Tabernacle. 
It was in his own territory and he missed it. He's a stone's throw from the tent of meeting. But he had to have his own priest. Why? 2 Timothy 4.3 says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Micah couldn't have his house of gods and go to the tabernacle. He couldn't have it his way if he went to the tabernacle. And by the way, if you go to the fellowship of believers in Jesus Christ, you don't go to have it your way. This is not Burger King. Church is not about having it my way. It is about going to where the Lord is to see what His will is so that your life can be His way. And not yours and not mine. Micah wanted religion, but he wanted it his way. But it was more than tickled ears. Look at verse 13. Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. And there's the deal. Micah never learned the lesson of his theft all the way back in verse 2. He never got it. In fact, what he learned from his mother was how to use church for profit. And that's not P-R-O-P-H-E-T. How to use the church for money. How to use religion for his own personal prosperity. That's what his mother taught him in verse 2. Let me give you money for your idols. Let me support this. This is a good thing. And now Micah has developed this sense of entitlement. Is that something we see going on in our world today? A sense of entitlement? Parents, do you see it with your kids? When they get upset because they don't get what they want as if they have a right to get it in the first place? We see it in our government. We see it in our schools. We see it in our whole attitude of living in America, the sense of entitlement. We are all Sally. We're Sally from the Charlie Brown Christmas. Remember the scene? Sally's walking behind her big brother. She's wanting him to make out the Christmas list. And she's given all this list of things and Charlie Brown's jotting them down and she says, she says, here, say this, make it easy on yourself, Santa. How about tens and twenties? And his brother, you know, Charlie Brown throws the pen up and runs out, oh, my little sister's, you know, commercialism's daughter. And, and, and Sally says these words and it's perfect, it's America. All I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. My rights, my entitlement. This is Micah. I just want my prosperity. I want what I've got coming to me. Turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Let me tell you what the Bible says we are entitled to. Okay? Just so we can be very, very clear about our entitlement, about our rights as human beings on the planet. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul writes, You were dead in your transgressions, in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too we all, Paul's now including himself, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and listen, we're by nature, watch this, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's our entitlement. Wrath. That's what we're entitled to. That's what we're born into. As sinful people, we are entitled to the wrath of God. So if you want to stand up before God and say, I want what I've got coming to me. I want my fair share. Well, you better pause for a moment because what you're asking for is the wrath of God to be poured out in your life. That's what we're entitled to. But, verse 4 goes on, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come we might get what we're entitled to. Oh, I'm sorry, that's not what it says. It says, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is not what we're entitled to, but it's the grace that God gives because of who He is. I'm entitled to wrath. I get grace. My rights are hell. My reward is heaven. And I am graced by the Father in such an amazing way. But Micah 
Micah shows us something of the world in which we live, blending, bending, and spending the truth like it's cold hard cash. One last thing I want to tell you, there are, these are nothing less than the attributes of apostasy, and we see apostasy happening in the world, even, even in the church today. And the only way to avoid apostasy is what we talked about Wednesday, to be constant in prayer and consistent in the Word of God. Constant in prayer, consistent in the Word. Constant in prayer, consistent in the Word. And you will know the will of God the Father. Turn now in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Last passage I want to share. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Where Paul talks about an apostasy to come. He tells us where the world, yes, even the church, is, is headed. Well, not the whole church. The whole church is not going to fall into apostasy, but many will. And Paul says the following in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by, way, uh, by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The church in Thessalonica, the church in Thessalonica had been planted by, God, by Paul a year earlier. He was there for three weeks, possibly four. It was three Sabbaths that he spent there in Thessalonica. Planted a church, three or four weeks, and then he had to leave. So now a year later, he's writing 2 Thessalonians. He's writing a letter back to them. And he's saying, listen, listen, there's been a letter circulating. People saying that it's from me. It's not from me. But a letter circulating saying the day of the Lord has already come. In other words, the rapture happened and you missed it and now you're heading into the tribulation. Now you're heading into hard times. And Paul says, don't be disturbed. It's not from me, and that's not the truth. And he says in verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. In other words, in the timeline of things, gang, we should expect to see apostasy in the world, a falling away, a rebellion against the things of God first. And he goes on and says, And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. I was talking about Antichrist. And it's also interesting that it says he will display himself as God in the temple of God, which tells us the temple is going to be rebuilt on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and Antichrist is going to seat himself as God in that temple. Paul goes on and says, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And this amazes me. Because Paul was talking end times theology to a church he planted and was with for four weeks. Most churches don't get to the end times until they've been around four years. Ten years. We'll get to the book of Revelation when we're ready. Now put it on. Paul started with Revelation. Paul planted Thessalonica with end times theology and prophecies about the second coming of Jesus Christ. That was the most important thing to Paul, and that's what he taught them in those four weeks. He already told them this. Do you not remember, verse 5, that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know, now listen to this, you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. Restrains who now? Restrains this tide of evil. Restrains Antichrist. Restrains what's going to happen. There is a restraining force. There is a restraining power in the world today that is holding back that tide of evil that is promised to come. The mystery of lawlessness, verse 7, is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Who is he who restrains? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit right now. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the world. But the world is evil, Rick. I know it is. But can you imagine this world without the presence of the Holy Spirit? Completely absent. And there is something about the intimate way in which the Holy Spirit works in the lives of believers and works in the church. And I believe and I think the Bible indicates that when the rapture of the church happens and the church is taken out, and I'm talking about true believers in Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about people who sit in cathedrals or church buildings or even barns, the true believers in Jesus Christ will be raptured, will be taken, and in that day the Holy Spirit, who is so intimately connected with believers, is going too. And things will begin to unravel here on planet earth verse 8 then that lawless one will be revealed whom good news the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and it's not because he needed a mint 
<laughs> and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders last verse here listen with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not listen they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved do you love the truth? do you have in your life a love of the truth? I share all this this morning partially because again that's where we are at in scripture looking at the life of Micah and his religious syncretism and his materialism and whatever the third one was his spending we see this in his life and as I process through these things and thought about it this week I realize you know I am just tired of people playing games with the word of life and I am sick of feelings-based religion. And I am done with Oscar Milkto's theology and of the pursuit of personal designer religion. There's far too much of it. And I don't want it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, what do you want, Rick? I want the truth. I just want the truth. Do you have a love of the truth? If you don't, you are among those who do not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved Micah didn't need a personal priest he needed to listen to his own name who is like Jehovah who is like the Lord Micah needed the Lord he needed to go to Shiloh he needed to go to the tabernacle he needed to offer sacrifices that were appropriate for the people of Israel at the time he needed to give his heart to the Lord God to Jehovah like his name said who is like the Lord Micah needed the Lord you don't need a personal priest you don't need a pastor for hire. You need the Lord. I need the Lord. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us there's one God and there is one mediator between God and men and that is who? Jesus Christ. He is the mediator. And He is who you need to go to. And He is the way, the truth, and the life. Do you have a love of the truth? Let's bow for a moment and pray. Father, we need this reminder. We need to know that there is truth. And it is a truth that we can stand on. And Father, I pray that you would crush the selfishness in my heart. That you would use the weight of the glory that is you, Father. That you would use the weight of the truth to stamp out my own personal designer faith. Father, I pray that the moment the words come off of my lips that I want or I wish that or I think religion should be or I like the church to be this Father would you just stop me in my tracks and say it's my will be done Lord I I accept and proclaim the words of Jesus Christ the, the words of Jesus Christ in the garden when he said not my will but yours be done and Father, may that ring true for all of us. May that be a hallmark of commitment here at the bridge. Not our will, but yours be done, Lord. Not what we want, but what you would have. Father, give us a love of the truth. Give us Jesus, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.